Welcome back, guys, to the JPS Podcast, and this is episode 35 with the one and only Lyle McDonald, and this is a two-part installment of the podcast because Lyle and I went balls deep into some specific topics related to his recent woman's book, and we covered specifically today the female athlete triad and everything that comes with uh, being a serious physique competitor or weight class athlete uh, for strength sports or power sports. And you guys are really going to get an insight into you know just how knowledgeable this man is, as well as some key considerations in relation to a monorrhea, so the loss of the menstrual cycle uh, as a result of low energy availability and all of these things. So, without further ado, I present to you part one of the Lyle McDonald Woman's Book series. So get a pen, get a pad, buckle up, and enjoy the show. What's that, sorry? I didn't realize that the time differential would put you up at four o'clock in the morning. Awful. <laughs> There's probably only a handful of people who I would get up at such an on, uh, ungodly yeah. hour for to, to talk to, sure. and uh, you're one of them, and <coughs> all right. it's all the more worth it when I can see the uh, the progress with the, uh, with the man beard. Yeah, that's pretty much the key. I think that's what I'm known for now. How you doing, Lyle? I'm well. Yourself? I'm very well. How's uh, how's the book been received? Uh, I mean, enormously. After three years of hype and finally being out, and you know, the internet has certainly changed since my last big book. So yeah, I, I, I don't think I've seen any really negative feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, or if I have, I mean, if it's out, I'm sure it's out there. But for the most part, yeah, um, I'm I'm waiting for someone to complain about, um, you know. A man writing about women, which is fine, and uh, I'm going to send a copy to this horrible website called Jezebel.com. That they, they do clickbaity, extremist, feminist type of stuff, and I'm going to send them a copy and take a bunch of stuff out of context just so that they'll rage against me and make <laughs> a billion people just, just for publicity. Um, no, perfect. Yeah. Perfect. So anyway, but yeah, so far, so far, everyone's like, "When's Volume Two coming out?" I'm like, "Don't." Don't hold your breath. <laughs> I usually take about three years between projects. The idea of going back to a second book is just – it just fills me with dread. Like a lot of it's written, which is easier, but it's still just like I just want to sleep for a year. So we'll see. <laughs> Man, I, th- I think you deserve it. I, I won't lie. I haven't read the whole thing yet um, considering I got my hard copy – uh, last, yeah. just just seven days ago, but I, I played okay. through it and holy crap! Like the level of detail, like yeah. I, I knew it'd be good, but I was like, psh, like, fuck. well, and that's now you know why it took me so long. Yeah, yeah, like of this course. was just a nightmare project, and mm. the deeper I got, the more complicated <laughs> it got, and you know the way my brain works, like I have to just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. So. Um, and women are just, you know, complicated. Men are easy. They really are. Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah. No, I'm uh, enjoying it so far. <coughs> like, I, I put up a Facebook post when um, when I got my copy and just said how you know, even in the first, I think it was like the first page or two, your satire and just the wit that yeah. was just, I was just like, man, this is going to be fun. And it's it's been fun to read, even though it's a very hard read. 
um it's been fun so so well done yeah i, I really think it's a quality especially book. like it's you know the first like the first 13 chapters is, is all background like it's really yeah. just the physiology which is kind of how i tend to write books like i've had people go you know what even if i don't use any of the information like i always learned like i always like to make sure people have that then then really chapter 14 is kind of where it shifts completely it's mm. like all right here's all the back now here's like and it's really just practical from there there on out but it's a lot of it's a lot of information to get through to get to that you know i i even thought about dividing it and be like you know chapter one through 13 is just background because a lot of that's going to go in in the in the training book because there's a lot of a lot of crossover but then i was like it's too much work people will just skip chapters one through 13 or not buy it so yeah but yeah it's, it's uh yeah yeah, I, I definitely noticed that as well in reading it. The first 13 chapters it, you know, clearly was just covering, um, you know, the, the basics, well, the very technical basics. Um, and yeah. then obviously you, you finished off with some practical recommendations and stuff like that. But yeah. no, I thought it was uh, really good. And what I wanted to talk today yeah. about Lyle um, on this podcast was not to have just another freaking discussion about the differences between sure. males and females. I know you've done that, yeah. uh, ad nauseum. Um, right. and, and we know that women should eat more protein, do less dumb shit when it comes to reducing calories. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to go on about that any more than, than you do, right. believe me. So, okay. um, I wanted to really hone in on some of the specifics and, uh, key areas in the book. Um, okay. that I had questions on personally for both okay. my own clients and I've also uh, seen on the forums and whatnot some yeah. uh, women have, have had some very specific questions and stuff. So okay. I wanted Pretty to d dig into that, which I thought would be um, yeah, a little bit more beneficial to listeners and hopefully yeah. uh, less tedious t for you. Uh -huh. So um, the, the first thing I thought you know we, we could start to dig into um, – was to ask you, were there any pieces of information in the book that were, uh, you know, not put in or after writing it, you felt that there was something that you could have added um, after publishing the book? Um, I don't know that there was, you know, my, there, you know, when I split the book up into volume one and volume two, that, that caused a lot of difficulty because, you know, volume two is going to be training. Mm -hmm. But since I had to talk about training for fat loss, mm. um, I had, you know, and I had to go back and add a lot of information. You know, there's kind of that weird chapter four that's like training goals mm. that's really out of place, like because it just it just didn't go anywhere else. And that was kind of it's like we have this physiology, this weird chapter that just because it was needed for the terms that were going to come up later, like even in the body composition and, and those chapters. And one of the things I've always tried to do with my books, you know, it's, I can never know what my readership is or what their background is. And like I saw a, a criticism of what is, make no mistake, it's a very good book. And so, but someone is like basic terms, like sets, reps, you know, just it's easy to forget when you've had a you know background in this that not everyone entering this mm. even has those base. So and and I get criticism on both ends. The people who are advanced don't want to go. Well, fine, just skip it. This and I'll even say like this is basic. Like if you know what a set and a rep is, just move on. You don't need this <laughs> section. And that, but if I don't put that in, the beginners are lost. Mm. Um, 
So, so yeah, so that was, but anyway, so I, I did pull a lot of the details of training out that just cause they're gonna, they were originally in there and there's this thing was getting up towards 400 pages. I'm like, it's going to be 600 when all is said and done. So that, that was a lot of it. And it was just staying away from just a lot of the detail stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, one little minor section, I, st- I thought about talking about body temperature and metabolic mm-hmm. rate dieting. And cause just, I dug into it one day and, um, Body temperature is a rough indicator of overall metabolic rate in terms of like thyroid hormone, nervous system. Uh, Dan Duchesne, I believe, is one of the first to recommend, excuse me, tracking that during a fat loss diet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I talked about in the book, women women see an increase in body temperature in the second half of their cycle, basal body mm-hmm. temperature, which is, has been used for uh, decades at least as an indication of when they're fertile because um, that occurs right after the egg is, is released. Um, so I thought about talking, and, and I actually, of course, found data that women's resting body temperature is, you know, the 98.6, A, that's an average for everybody. Mm. B, of course, women and men do run a little bit differently. You know, mm. this has been a big thing. This is a big news story, I think, last year. And, you know, anybody with a brain would have told you this. Women and men run at different temperatures. Women and men, if you're living together, they're always fighting over what, you know, the, the temperature that keeps women warm. Especially men menopause, are, when menopause are, hits. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I joked. There's also women tend to score, store more temperature centrally mm-hmm. around the midsection, and their hands and feet are always cold. And that's a, sort of an obvious adaptation to keep the, the fetus healthy, right? And there's an old aphorism my mom relayed to me, which is for women, it's warm heart, cold hands, warm heart. And just kind of, and I've joked, well, not joked, but there's a reason that people often get in relationships in the winter. On top of being lonely, women want a man that they can put their hands and feet up against to steal our body heat. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's not like it's, I'm half joking and really half not joking. Um, but yes, yeah, so it was this big thing. It was like, oh, you know, office temperatures, which have been set by men firm, are not optimal for women. So I looked into this and body temperatures, of course, a little bit different and the same way everything else is different. But it was just like kind of this minor section that didn't really, I don't know that most people are going to track that on a fat loss diet and it just gets into too many variables. But other than that, you know, there's a couple set again, most of what got pulled out is going to go in the training book. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. You know, probably if there's one section I kind of sort just because it, it does come up a lot is uh, the effect of hormonal birth control on athletes. Um, I, I'm actually even considering writing a very small guys. Can you just stop? Please. My dogs are getting rain. <laughs> guys, please stop. I know you're lonely guys. Um, just because there's a lot of questions and misconceptions about it. Mm. And actually, uh, uh, one of the top female powerlifters, like she's, she's poised to, I think, do a four times body weight deadlift, came in my group and said, you know, my OBGYN gave me uh, the Depo-Provera shot, which is a very high dose progesterone injection. How will it affect my training? And I'm like, you're screwed. Like you're mm. screwed for at least three months, possibly six, because this is like, but, but the, the, the non-sports doc, they don't, you know, told, she, she was told this won't this one impact your sports performance. And there's a lot of misconceptions about that. And there's pros and cons to hormonal mm-hmm. birth control um, in terms of, you know, when they first came about, there was actually, uh, you know, it was, it was considered a miracle for female athletes because they could regulate their performance and body weight in cycles, right? Let's say you're a female Olympic athlete. You know that during week three of your cycle, you perform badly. 
if your world championships falls in that week, if you're Olympic gold medal comp, guess what? You're out of luck. Mm. You're, you're the last four years of your training and possibly your career. If this is your last Olympics, you're SOL. Yeah. So the idea was that you could use birth control to regulate the, the cycle. The problem is that, guys, stop it. Um, the problem is that for certain types of activities, it can hurt trainability. Mm. And a lot of that depends on the type of hormonal birth control that, that is being used. So, you know, like I said, this athlete, basically her year has, is destroyed. And for strength power sport, depending on how old she is, like she may yeah. be past her. She's, if next year she's, if she's hit her prime, she's, she's screwed. Um, and, and the unfortunate reality is, you know, hormonal birth control is used for uh, its obvious reason, um, you know, to, to prevent pregnancy. It's used to regulate the cycle. Women that have very painful menstrual cycles often use it, et cetera. But it can, it can, even if the average effect is nil and, and a lot of the early work was on endurance athletes. And I don't know if you know endurance sports much, but you're an endurance athlete. If your performance is down 5%, it doesn't matter. You can always go grind miles. I, yeah. I don't care how badly I felt. I can always go put in the low intensity miles, no matter how, you know, you're in a little, but, but even then there's just huge variability in how the menstrual cycle impacts this and, and, um, but birth control, certain types. So I, I would have liked to have probably had that in there, but it's really more of a training issue. Mm -hmm. Like in the book, you know, you've read the chapters I really focused on. Does it cause weight gain? Does it impair fat loss? Um, you know, everything else really was just pulled out for the the training books. I don't I don't think there's anything any topics I really left out. I mean, at 438 pages, yeah, I was, was going to say you don't know. <laughs> I, I think anything I would have come up would have been either such a minuscule uh, topic, or it would have been relevant to such a tiny, tiny, mm. tiny like you know. In as much as I spend a lot of time on you know physique competitors and strength power athletes and athletes trying to reach 12 percent body fat, which is already, you know, maybe 10% of the general population, anything I think I would have discussed would have been, you know, 1% of that 10% and just yeah. wouldn't have been, you know, I'm sure some women wish I had addressed the drug use more or, yeah. or uh, the drug issue. I, in all of my books, that's always a choice. And, and if you, you know, if you look at my, my overall book, I either do or I don't. There, there's really no, you know, every, UD2, I mentioned a, a couple at the time, but I find that if I put in detailed drug information, um, number one, the people who want to use drugs, which is fine. I don't care. I don't care either way. Just be honest about it. They're unhappy that there's not enough detail, but the people who will never use drugs are really put off by it. And honestly, from a business perspective, the people who will be put off of it far outweigh the yeah, people who definitely. see it. I would rather write a separate book yeah. uh, in as much as I, you know, that's really not my area of expertise. But I, I, I kind of, uh, I mentioned it very obliquely and I just kind of point out that when you see top athletes, top, especially in, in the physique world, one mm -hmm. of the little dirty secrets we don't hear about is even when we got away from hardcore female bodybuilding and things like classic physique and figure and fitness became much more popular, there is much milder admittedly, but there is a small amount of drug use going on, whether it's a little bit of anabolic steroids, clen, thyroid, you know, that little extra bit. And it, 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 the women who succeed with certain approaches and don't report problems who, who may be doing that, I don't want to say that they're all doing it, um, tend to give a very false perspective to those that aren't. 
and they don't, you know, the naturals, just like male bodybuilding, yeah. the natural male, I used to see guys complain. They're like, you know, I'm, I'm 185 and lean, but I'm still small. Like, no, you're not. By, by every objective value, you are bigger than most men in the world. You cannot compare yourself to Dorian Yates and, you know, these 280-pound behemoths that are taking a gram of steroids a day. And I think, so I think that happens a lot with women. Um, so I didn't really, you know, that, I guess I could have addressed it, but it just wasn't. Uh, yeah, well, it just wasn't the place to do it. Yeah. So, and 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 performance enhancing drugs. I, I probably know more about the fat loss end of things. Steroids have just never been really my interest. So, you know, I, other than some generalities. So, like I mentioned it a little bit. Talk about you know you you see. I think one thing I pointed out, or maybe this is in the training book. Whenever you see like a European or a Chinese or Russian coach that can only ever make great female athletes. There's a reason for that, and it's because females respond better to steroids. That's just flatly. If, if their training doesn't work for both women and men, it's because it's drug-fueled. There's just absolutely no doubt about it. Duh, performance sports. Um, so, so probably maybe that, but I can't, I can't really think of any physiology that I didn't, you know – cover to one degree or another like i i you know it I is very comprehensive extremely comprehensive. yeah that's why, took, that's why it took so damn long yeah, and you right. know listeners who aren't familiar with it because a lot of the questions i see tend to be you know do you talk about menopause do you talk about polycystic ovary syndrome and i did not talk about, right and and i did not talk about disease states because that's just volumes yeah. and I'm not a medical, <laughs> it's just, yeah. you know, that, that, that's something you need to talk you know, and there's, and, and women's systems are more sensitive. They mm -hmm. can have things go wrong for any number of problems, uh, or any number of reasons, but polycystic ovary syndrome is one of the most common sort of reproductive. I, I hate to use the word dysfunction, but it is like, you know, they're metabolic dysfunctions. I don't want any women to go like, oh, he said I'm defective as a woman. No, it is just there are metabolic issues. I addressed that because it's very common in sport, especially the, the elevated testosterone version of it. Um, the, you know, menopause, a lot of things change. And so in this book, part of why it's so long is I covered – what I call the normally psyching, and that's just a woman that has, you know, the traditional menstrual cycle. Again, normal does not imply abnormal. For the rest, I talk about menstrual cycle dysfunction, and there's four different levels of that. Talk about PCOS and also a related sort of uh, slightly elevated androgen levels. I talk about, uh, well, I mentioned, that, you know, loss of menstrual cycle, amenorrhea goes with menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. And I talk about perimenopause, and I talk about the changes that occur at menopause and then whether hormone replacement therapy is or is not instilled. And then I had to do that for every single topic mm. to, in as much data as there, and then try to address all the different training goals, which include general fitness and health, bone density, what I call the serious trainee, which is the person training, you know, four or five days a week at a higher level than general fitness, but who's not competitive. The endurance performance athletes, the high-intensity performance athlete, which is like track sprinters, track cyclists, swimmers, yep. mixed, which is mainly team sports and MMA, and then physique athletes. So start to multiply all that out. Mm. Um, in the first draft of the book, I actually <laughs> had – towards the end of the book, you'll see there's charts of like here's the menstrual cycle. Here's how it interacts with yep. the different components. This is how you kind of stack Training it on days, top of it. nutrition. In yep. the original draft of the book, I did one of those – for every hormonal situation and every goal. I, I, and, and, and it was just me staring at tiny little boxes <laughs> for days. And I drew them all out and 
mostly redundant, which is why I took all of it out. Like it's so it's so repetitive that it really mm-hmm. wasn't useful. But you can see that, that the number of possibilities just because of the different hormonal situations and because that affects which diet you might set up, which supplements might be appropriate, mm-hmm. what changes occur across a monthly training cycle. And there'll be more of this, I think, in the training section yeah. because of the potential for these things to impact on how strong a woman may be on any given day, her performance can change even for endurance time trials. Like there's going to be, in as much as it impacts diet and supplements, it has also the great potential to impact on uh, how training might ideally be Definitely. set up. So, high buddy. <laughs> so I guess uh, that you know that last segment in terms of the the you know hypothalamic uh, amenorrhea uh, loss of menstrual yep. cycle that sort of ties in with where I wanted to take our first discussion today. Um, okay. In that you know the objective when trying to get extremely low body fat percentages or to, for weight class athletes, I want to talk specifically about those who are you know trying yep. to to reach the uh, upper end of what is possible you know physiologically. Yep. Um, in terms of their body composition, the right. goal is not to get full blown uh, hypothalamic sure. amenorrhea. And I guess you know it's extremely common for physique competitors or anyone who adopts any form of extreme dieting, uh, exercise. Yes. You know all this. Um, and obviously, um, I guess the question becomes, you know, and I know you, you discuss this in your book. Obviously, um, how can females who are trying to get on stage? make a weight class sport or just, you know, get seriously lean. For example, if they're a model or a bikini model and, you know, their livelihood is uh, dependent on, you know, their conditioning, um, how can they maximize the structure of their micro cycle in terms of diet and training uh, to minimize the likelihood of it occurring or at least delay, you know, uh, when when it comes on? And, and that's kind of, you know, sort of just so for some background, right? Amenorrhea is a lot, you know, complete lack of a menstrual cycle. It's defined as less than three cycles per year. Most women who develop it will pretty much not menstruate at all. Now, amenorrhea can be caused by a lot of, you know, technically hormonal birth control will eventually cause amenorrhea. And I'm not talking about that. There's a number of medical conditions that can cause it. Mm-hmm. The, the one I focus on in the book is what's called functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. And all this means is that the hypothalamus, which is the big structure in your brain that kind of tells everything else what to do, senses things like training load, stress, and predominantly uh, energy availability, which I'll define here in a second. And when it sort of, set, you know, it's, a, it's the same structure that's involved in the just general dieting adaptations, which is kind of what this is, right? When we diet as a man or a woman, the, body, the brain goes, oh, we're not eating enough. We're losing body fat, slow metabolic rate, yada, 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 to try to stay alive. And it, it, so, that, so I'm very specifically focusing on, on that menstrual, that, that specific type. And unfortunately, it tends to be a diagnosis of exclusion. What happens in, in a medical situation is they look for every other cause, and if they can't find it, they kind of default to that, mm-hmm. which I think is a little misguided because there are, there's, a, there's a classic hormonal signature of, of when this starts to occur. Um, and sort of as a slight more background, right? So way back in the day, when they first right realized that in, in the U.S. at least, female athletes really didn't start entering sport till the late 70s. Title 12 in the U.S. required that women have equal access in premise anyway to sport. And in the 80s, they started to see all these hormonal problems that men just didn't have, right? Men don't have a menstrual cycle to lose. And but at the time, the technology, you know, they didn't have good technology. They didn't really know what was going on. And so what they saw were two things. They saw women who was menstruating, 
which is called eumenorrhea. Eu just means good or normal. They saw amenorrhea, which was a complete loss of cycle. And they also saw oligomenorrhea, which is an infrequent cycle every 35 to 90 days. And originally, oligomenorrhea and amenorrhea were grouped. And they, they were thought to be part of the same uh, phenomenon. And now we know that at least a, a fairly large portion of oligomenorrhea is caused by women having, because what they saw in oligomenorrhea is that women had elevated testosterone levels. And they went, oh, oligomenorrhea causes the elevated testosterone. It's the opposite. Mm -hmm. Women have typically polycystic ovary syndrome, which can be marked by two to three times normal testosterone. There's another thing I talk about, the subclinical, you know, 20 to 30% more. That disrupts the menstrual cycle. However, oligomenorrhea can develop as part of a sequence. And the difference is if a woman hits puberty and has always had an irregular menstrual cycle, it's PCOS related, mm -hmm. right? She didn't. She didn't hit puberty and suddenly have dieting training issues generally. If, if oligomenorrhea develops from, if a woman has a normal menstrual cycle, is typically is normally cycling and develops oligomenorrhea, it's part of this sequence. Mm -hmm. And I say sequence because in the early days, all they could measure was normal or, or gone or infrequent. Now we know that there's two stages in between which are called subclinical menstrual cycle disorders. The first one is called luteal phase defect. That means that the luteal phase, second half of the cycle, don't produce, it, it can shorten or it just typically is marked by insufficient progesterone. The problem is the cycle is typically still the same length. The woman still menstruates, but she's infertile mm. and this progesterone can't maintain uh, the, the lining where the egg uh, would normally develop. But, but, to her, she'll look completely, if you did a blood test, you would see lowered leptin, lower T3, lowered IGF-1, elevated cortisol slightly. But they don't do that because the woman has no, no reason to think that there's anything wrong unless she's trying to get pregnant. The next step is anovulation. The egg is not being released. Cycle's still the same. They're still bleeding. Nothing, but if you did a blood test, you would see lower leptin, it would lower leptin, lower T3, lower metabolic rate. It's weird, oligomenorrhea as part of the sequence just doesn't seem to develop that frequently, or if, it's, if it is, I'm not, I wasn't seeing it talked about. And then the next stage is amenorrhea. So we now have this sequence from normal to these two middle stages that can't be determined because everything looks totally normal until a woman develops, and, and it's, I, I, it's been referred to you know, uh, as, it's just sort of this invisible menstrual cycle dysfunction because without blood work, without, there's just no indication. So we've got this sequence that goes, and it just, things get progressively worse. And by the time you're amenorrheic, T3 is very low. Insulin-like growth factor is very low. Leptin is very low. Cortisol is very high. Uh, metabolic rate may be reduced by 20% from normal. Immune system function, they're like, a whole lot goes wrong. Um, there are a couple of very minor advantages, and I don't want women to latch onto these. Like, obviously, many women like not having a monthly cycle to deal with for, for fairly obvious reasons. Um, a lot of the, the normal cyclical changes in body weight go away, so it makes tracking the diet a lot easier. Mm -hmm. um, since they're not losing as much blood, it, they're losing less iron every month. But these are very minor compared to the big drawback, which is potentially permanent bone mineral density loss. And that is this, that that can't be unless you're getting a DEXA every year. You don't know that, that women don't know that that's occurring either. It is this silent aspect. So, um, it turns out, and there was for years they are they try to figure out what caused it because they typically saw amenorrhea in athletes whose sports focused on thinness. So here we're talking about 
runners, cyclists to a lesser degree, ballet, gymnastics, um, things of that nature. It was related to running volume. Uh, but, you know, they saw when they did early studies, they would throw women into just these enormous amounts. And it was, it was seen in weight loss. So there were all these things going on. And still, just because I like bringing up this story, one of, my favorite theory about what causes this is uh, breastfeeding can cause, done properly, is actually a very good form of birth control. Not the way we do it in the Western world, but if you look at sort of extant hunter-gatherer societies, the kids come in and, and breastfeed every few minutes. That elevates prolactin and that inhibits uh, normal reproductive function. And the theory was that women who were jogging, that their breasts were getting nipple stimulation from their sports bras, and that was elevating prolactin and causing loss of the menstrual I think that's my favorite. <laughs> the one that really took the most hold was the body fat theory. <laughs> I just – Whatever, I found that in some random bit of trivia. And just, that is that so good. <laughs> and so so early on, the, the researchers thought that the big, the big criteria here was body fat percentage. It was typically, this was almost universally seen in very lean athletes. It made logical sense, right? We knew it, it had been observed that women had, little girls had to hit a critical body fat percentage to start menstruating. Right, this makes logical sense. You, women's body fat exists to support pregnancy, mm -hmm. support fetal development and breastfeeding. If she doesn't have enough body fat, she's probably still starving. It made sense that the system wouldn't turn on before that. The, the reverse logic then became, well, if she goes below a certain body fat percentage, it makes logical sense for that to turn off. The problem was that women were starting to be seen at varying body fat percentages. And you would see a woman at say 12% body fat near the lower limit who was still menstruating. Mm. Now she probably had one of these subclinical disorders. They just weren't known at the time, but you'd see women at 18% that weren't menstruating. So if there was this singular critical number, well, there wasn't, there clearly wasn't a singular critical number. So I'll come back. It turns out body fat percentage is, is related indirectly, but it's not really the primary driver. So fast forward to like the 2000s and a researcher named Luke's who, because the problem is, all right, if you, one study took a bunch of young girls at camp, it threw them into like 10 miles a day of running with two hours of activity, like right off the bat. And most of them got menstrual cycle dysfunction, but the women who lost more weight, all it was a hundred percent. But how do we separate this out if we've got dieting? Dieting is low calories. Is it training stress? Mm. Is it training stress plus weight loss? It's very you can't separate these out because they're all related. So Ann Lukes came through and she she defined a concept called energy availability. And what you can think of that as is calorie intake minus exercise energy expenditure. Right? This isn't energy balance, and this mm. is kind of a, a confusing. It, it's a little bit different, right? So if you're eating 1,800 calories a day and you're burning 400 calories a day in exercise, your energy availability is 1,400 calories. And those are the number of calories left to support all the body's systems, right? Every day as we sit here, your brain is using calories, your heart is using calories, it takes calorie, it takes energy to you know, maintain uh, ion gradients across tissue, kidney function, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, another early paper, he, ba he basically argued that, you know, there are relatively more or less critical systems in the body, right? If your brain stops working, you die. If your body stops making hair or fingernails, you're all right. And that's actually a known effect of extreme dieting. It's called mm -hmm. telogen effluvium. I don't know why. Go look it up. But a lot of people note that their hair start or their, their nails get real brittle. 
because why would the body spend energy on your fingernails when it doesn't have enough to go around? Reproductive function obviously is, is also not, it's not critical for immediate survival, right? It's critical for long-term survival of the human race. I would also argue that if there's not enough food available, right, and realize that this would have, would have developed, this was before we did sport for fun. This was when if food isn't available, then that is not a good time to get pregnant because you don't have the calories to support fetal development, which causes its own set of issues. The odds of it surviving to the, you know, to age five, which is about when, when uh, infant death rate goes down significantly, is almost nil. So this is all kind of how this system kind of logically developed. And what she found initially, and what she did was very an elegant study. She took untrained women, five days, and she either lowered energy availability by keeping food intake the same and just jacking up their exercise, or she kept their exercise the same and dropped their food intake. But she developed, she generated the same energy availability because what, which one you adjust, it, it you know, if, if, if you eat 1,800 calories and do 400 of exercise, it's 1,400 energy availability. If you eat 1,400 calories and do zero activity, it's 1,400. So it is, it is identical in that regards. What she found was that with a very low energy availability, all of this standard hormonal picture showed up. Low T3, lowered metabolic rate, elevated cortisol. Um, more importantly, she found lowered, there's a hormone called luteinizing hormone. It's released. The hypothalamus tells the pituitary to release luteinizing hormone, follicle-stimulating hormone. This is what controls reproductive function. Function. So in women, FSH is involved with developing the follicle, the egg. Luteinizing hormone tells the ovaries to make hormones. In men, it's, uh, I believe, FSH is sperm production and LH is testosterone. So very similar. And what she found was decreased luteinizing hormone pulsatility which meant that the pituitary gland was sending uh, a le less of a signal to the, the re to the reproductive organs. Now, I'm not saying she saw the development of menstrual cycle dysfunction in five days, but she saw the hormonal profile that down the road will lead to it, right? So, and, what, and she identified that it was this energy availability, and again, almost regardless of how you did it, exercise had a little bit less impact for reasons it's in the book and I don't wanna go into it. Um, but for the most part, it was identical. So then her next step was, because she basically she just created this, it was like five calories per kilogram of lean body mass. And this is normalized to lean body mass. That's how energy availability is defined because lean body mass is what uses the calories. So first she just created this staggering energy, low energy availability. But then she wanted to find out, is there a critical point? Like, is it a threshold? Is it a continuum? So she did the same study and went from like 50, like 40, 30, 20, 10, and everything was fine until they had about 30 kcals per kg of LBM, which is 13.6 kcal per pound LBM. And that's when the problem started. So boom, critical threshold. And it turns out that if you kind of math this out the other in reverse, that's about resting metabolic rate. So basically, if your energy availability goes below the, and, and that also makes logical sense, mm. right? Your resting metabolic rate is the calories needed to maintain your basic functions. If you're eating less than that, your body has to make an important choice of what it's going to turn off. So reproductive system. So, so boom, we got this critical threshold. And it was then suggested that 45 kcal per kg LBM was considered sufficient for athletes. And if you reverse math that out, depending, it's around 17 to 20 calories per pound, which is, I want to say 38 to 40 some odd. You know, it's, it's right about the numbers we've typically used for maintenance. 
right? Usually strength physique athletes use far less calories. Endurance athletes are burning an absolute shed load. Um, so that, so that number got established and still there were some issues. This is a five day long study. It was untrained individuals. Do athletes, are they different? Observationally, they found that, and let me make sure I phrase this correctly. All women with amenorrhea were below the critical threshold. But all women below the critical threshold did not have amenorrhea, right? So it was they had to be below it, but being below it didn't guarantee it. If that meant, hopefully that that will parse through. Um, so clearly there was a little bit more going on. Now, so I, I, I'm, I can almost guarantee that the women who did not have full-blown amenorrhea, they had one of those subclinical dysfunctions, but for whatever reason, and in the research, this frustrated me for a year, the researchers would talk about women who were more robust, and nobody ever defined what it meant. It just bothered me. It was just kind of this, they're more robust. We're just going to hand wave this because we don't know. And there, there's a genetic component. It has been shown that women who have a what's called a higher reproductive age, and this is the number of years a woman has been menstruating. So she started at 12 and she's 18. Her reproductive age is four. Started at 12 and she's 28. Her reproductive age is 16. Not biological. Is is above a 14-year reproductive age. Women's systems become more robust. So, and this explained earlier studies where studies of younger girls invariably saw the development of amenorrhea but running studies of older women didn't. So that basically she developed this model mm. that sort of put it all together, right? Low energy availability is going to occur if you're dieting, obviously. If you do a tremendous amount of activity and don't raise food intake, you are creating a low energy availability state. If you do activity and you lose weight, you're obviously in a low energy availability state. So this kind of, kind of, you know, put this all together into a very coherent picture. And even when she looked at a body fat percentage, right, on average, uh, women with amenorrhea have like 2% less body fat than women without, but the range is like 12 to 24%. So like the 2% doesn't matter relative to the, to the range. So we've got all the, these different factors kind of contributing. So this, you know, which is a long way to get to your question, which is how can women avoid this right now in, in premise, never go below that threshold. <laughs> but, but which is great on paper, but there's two problems. One is that for women to get sufficiently lean, they will have to cross that threshold. There is simply no way to get to that 10 to 12 percent body fat without doing it. Um, there's another issue, and this was luckily, thank God it took me so long to write the book because some good papers came out towards the end. And one found that they were starting to identify women with amenorrhea that were at like 32 to 34 energy availability. Like it was a little bit above. Now this makes sense, right? Five days, like I can diet someone for five days and I'm not going to see a lot of changes. But no matter what deficit they're on, if I diet them for three months, as they lose body fat, you're going to see progressive changes. And that's the difference here is it's long-term low energy availability versus very short-term. And going back to the body fat real quickly, one thing that's been known for years, lean women are much more at risk of developing amenorrhea. Overweight women never do unless you do like bariatric surgery, at which point energy availability drops from all the calories to zero, like literally overnight. But for the most part, it was only women who were below like 22 to 24% body fat. So that, that suggests that body fat, and it's, of course, leptin, of course, because of course it is. And if leptin is below a certain level, there seems to be a critical leptin level. 
But since leptin is responding to both body fat and energy and calorie intake, body fat is only permissive. It's part of it, but it's not, it can't explain all of it. So this, so again, the one, you know, the one theory would be, oh, just never go below that level. Well, good luck. Now, do note that, okay, let's say a woman hits 12%. She's no longer dieting, so she can raise her calories to some degree, right, so that she's, she's now at maintenance. This will automatically raise her energy availability. Now, whether or not that will, you know, resume menstrual cycle function is, is a, you know, that, that's a bigger question. And I'll come back. There's a, a case study I reported on right at the very end of the book on a female runner. So how do we avoid, how do women the reality is for a woman to get to 10 or 12%, A, she will get some degree of menstrual cycle dysfunction. That is unavoidable. Now, whether or not she will get full-blown amenorrhea, that's, I think in most cases, it's more likely to happen than not. It's clearly not universal. She's a little bit older. She's probably less likely to, but so a lot of it depends on how women diet. And this is really kind of the, kind of what you were getting at that I got to in a very long way, which is... So there, there are actually two really good case studies in the book that are, of physique athletes that, that really point out good and bad ways of dieting, right? So the first dieter was she started at, she's like 22% body fat. She was eating like 42 calorie, calories per kg LBM. Energy availability, she, she, she started six months out. She induced a very moderate deficit. Um, she did lose her cycle one month out. But she made it five months through her diet without losing because it took her that long mm. to reach the critical mm. threshold by starting fatter, sorry, with a higher body fat percentage and a higher calorie level, right? And Eric Helms, his goal for his physique competitors, the way he puts it is you want to start your diet eating as many calories as you can without gaining body fat, which is just a very indirect way of saying you want to start with the highest energy because it gives you the highest baseline. Because that way you can cut 20% out and you're still only at whatever, 38. Mm. And then you, when you, you have to cut the 10%. Pre contest diet. Yeah, basically. And that's, that's where, you, you know, a month for the final month before they start their diet, it's kind of a stabilization phase. He wants them eating as many calories as possible without gaining body fat. Because again, if you start at 42 calories per kg LBM, 42 energy availability, and you cut it 20%, you're now at 38. You're fine. You cut a 10% more, and now you're at 35. Like it, eventually you're going to get there. It's a matter of delaying it as long as possible. Now, in contrast, there was another physique competitor. She started at like 16% body fat, and her energy availability at the beginning of her diet was like 32. She was already near the critical. Thing. And I bet if they'd measured it, she probably already had a subclinical menstrual cycle disorder. She went below the critical threshold her first week of the diet. She lost her menstrual cycle a month in, which meant she didn't have it for like the next five months. There was a secondary issue, which is like, you know, after the diet. Well, let's come, we'll come back to menstrual cycle recovery. Let's just talk about avoiding missing it, losing it in the first place, right? So that, but that just, and yes, their case studies, it wasn't comparative, but this is a general observation, right? Women, if you're starting at a lower energy availability to generate fat loss, you're going to go below it instantly and you're going to induce those adaptations immediately. That's going to cause problems sooner than otherwise. Another, the other thing to do, and this came out very indir indirectly in this. I'll go back to a couple of studies. No. Um, so Ann Luke's knew in animals that if you starve them for five days and then refeed them for a day, everything goes back to normal, right? The old refeed thing. When I was writing about in 2004, mm -hmm. she wanted to see if this worked in humans. So she did the standard five-day low energy availability 
And then, oh my God, she gave these women, I forget the numbers, but it was like 7,000 calories. It was something that was just Heaven. awesome. It was just <laughs> awesome. Like I, I, I'm sure they had trouble eating it all. And over that one day, she saw zero recovery of hormones. Zero. And anyone who's listened to some of my recent podcasts, like I've talked about this, you know, whether or not a one-day refeed has any utility metabolically, not from the standpoint of glycogen and yada, yada, yada. So there was another study that wasn't even looking at this. And what they, what she did by Olson, and she did three days of actually fasting, which is about as low energy available. You can actually have, a, and you can actually have a negative energy availability. If you have like a gymnast eating 400 calories a day and ex training for eight hours, she'll actually have negative energy availability. Mm. And that's endemic to that sport of ballet too. So she generated low energy availability for three days, saw the same cluster, the same hormonal snapshot. And then she just let the women go back to maintenance for two days and then just happened to remeasure hormones. Boom, everything went back to normal. So what, what we can sort of in, infer from that, and again, I've been talking about this recently, is at least infrequently, one refeed every five days is not sufficient to impact hormones. But two every five days is, right? And, and just as a, a plug, so my ultimate diet too, which is one of my earlier books. As I've gone back to that, it's probably more optimized for women than for men. Surely by luck, make absolutely no mistake, this was not deliberate, but it, it, it has four and a half days of very low calories. It has two days of maintenance or above calories. And then one day that it's maintenance for a little bit below. And I had had women who were dieting to contest levels without losing their menstrual cycle. And... Now, Eric and I d discussed this for like a year because what he has seen is, okay, so we know that one refeed day or one maintenance day every five days is insufficient once you're below critical threshold. What if you're doing a maintenance day every third day or every, you know, what if you're doing two days a week, but they're not sequential, right? So maybe you diet Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays at maintenance, Thursday, Friday, you know, however you, you structure it. And, and the day, there's no data there, mind you, but from a hormonal standpoint, right, we know that there, typically there's a lag time. Like even when you start to diet, you don't start to get hungry till like day four. It takes sort of, there's like the brain has to kind of notice that you're not yeah. if that makes sense. So like there, you know, there's kind of this idea that maybe if you reverse things every third day, it will sort of limit that. And, and then again, two or three days later, you're doing it. And, and a lot of this depends on where you are in your diet, right? If your energy availability is still at 40, you don't have to worry about this. It's late in the diet that's become, and, and what he's seen empirically is that by having his athletes diet like harder for three or four days a week, but then have two or three days of maintenance as they get closer to goal, that they do typically still lose their menstrual cycle, but it happens a lot later. And, and that's really kind of what we're looking at. And this, and this is just mainly to, to limit what is really truly physical damage, right? I'm, I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that the loss of the menstrual cycle can cause bone mineral density loss. Women already, this is a potential, and I realize a 22-year-old physique competitor doesn't give a damn. For me to say, when you're 70, this is gonna predispose you to osteoporosis. Nobody at 22 cares about any of that. But this is not a joke. There is also evidence that if she gets her menstrual cycle back, the bone density can be regained if she trains properly, which means heavy resistance training, high peak loading, sufficient calories, sufficient calcium, vitamin D, et cetera. But th this is on top of all the other things. Your training will go into the toilet. Your metabolic rate is in the toilet. Um, hormones are all messed up. Like it, there's, there's a lot of... Amenorrhea is not a healthy state to be in.
Um, so you want to both delay its occurrence. You know, ideally you avoid it completely. You're going to get luteal phase defect probably in ovulation at the very least. You want to avoid it not only as as long as possible by dieting. I would say rationally or just non-pathologically. Like I'm not saying not. You know, you can do an extreme diet, right? I've written extreme diets. My rapid fat loss handbook. But for a lean athlete, it's only two weeks. That and then ends with three days of maintenance calories, mm-hmm. right? You can get away with this for short periods of time. There's no doubt about it. The problem is that women try to do this for extended periods with two hours a day of aerobics. On twelve, their energy availability is just tanked. They're just and and they're actually. I mean, I said I just want women to consider this: that if you diet too hard for even five days, you can lower metabolic rate slightly in only five days of bad dieting. Now, again, if you add, you know, if you put in a refeed or whatever every five, four or five days, it's not a big deal. But that's not what women do. Typically, they cut their calories hard and they keep them there. Well, when they're not having potential binge eating episodes, which is a whole separate issue, then when fat loss slows, like where do you now? Where do you go now? Right. So you're you're starting at 32. Right. You've now reduced your calorie, your energy availability. You're already doing 90 minutes of aerobics. What do you do when fat loss slows? What do you do now? Right. And again, Eric. And and so if folks who don't know, he was he, he gave me an, he wrote an appendix for the book and actually gave me constant feedback. And, and I'm, I'm happy to say that all of my theoretical research based ramblings basically matched up what he's found to work in practice, which is always nice when that works out. Um, you know, and his 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 thing on aerobics is do as little as you need to get to your goal, mm-hmm. which is not to say, he's not saying do none, right? The, the, the typical pre-contest approach is eat as little as you can and do two hour, an hour aerobics morning and night, right? Now, some smaller women may need that at the end. That's just the reality. If you're a 120 pound woman, your calories will hit a point that they're, they can't go any lower. If you're doing 60 minutes of cardio and your weights, you might have to do more, but do it because you need it. Not because that's just the way it's always been done. That that's kind of the difference yeah. here, and you bring it in gradually, right? And that's sort of the other key is there's at least some indication that women's bodies just don't like big rapid changes, especially if they're maintained in the long term. I said you can get away with this from for a couple of weeks, um, but it, you know the women who are ending up at a low energy availability. They may have started at 42, and yes, they're at 30, but it happened over a five-month span, and that's the difference. Mm. And same thing with the aerobics. They may have been doing 30 minutes three times a week. Fat loss starts to slow. They don't want to cut calories too much because they get hungry, so you add 10 or 15 minutes a week. And even if you go back before we knew about any of this stuff, if you looked at successful physique athletes who had experience, they would just every couple of weeks – They would cut their food intake by 100 calories or they would add 10 or 15 minutes of cardio and they might have ended up doing a lot at the end on fairly low calories. But that's just the reality, especially for for physique more than endurance athletes. Right. So there's another case study in the book that is a a female cyclist who got injured and was put on a a very rational approach by um, Louise Burke at the AIS, who. She's who I want to be when I grow up. She, she's just one of the top, not only clinical researcher, her applied sports nutrition, it just she blows me away. Like her, her book, Practical Sports Nutrition, is the best book on the topic I've ever read. Like she, she does fantastic applied research because the Australian Institute of Sport. So she put this female cyclist on a diet 
The cyclist was at like 45 cal per kg LBM energy availability. She targeted like 35. Realized cyclists aren't trying to get to 12%. Mm -hmm. She increased her dietary protein. She lifted twice a week. But if you look at her calorie intake, it was like 3,000 calories. But realize that endurance cyclists do a ton of training. By the end of her her 10-week diet, she was doing two five-hour bike rides a week. Right. And that's a several, that's a couple, even for a smaller female, that's a good 2000 calorie burn. So you can eat 3000 calories and you're still at deficit. Right. So, so physique athletes, the reality is weight training burns a paltry number of calories. Aerob low intensity aerobic burns up, even interval training doesn't burn a lot of calories. So physique athletes are just kind of limited in how much training that they're able to do. Endurance athletes, by dint of their sport, just do, you know, uh, an elite runner is running 20 hours a week. An elite cyclist is doing 30 hours a week, 25, 30 hours a week. Um, but one thing I wanted to comment, uh, going back to the, the amenorrhea thing is, so there's another case study in there and it's of, a, an elite female runner who they followed her career for nine years. This was just a, a, like one of those studies that you have to wonder how just practically they did it. Because there's another issue, which is women want to stay lean year round, right? This gets to sort of the model example, or if you're the reality is, you know, if you're a physique athlete, if you're a fitness model, you have to stay pretty close to, you know, to photo shape or, you know, it's your job. So how, how do we, how can a woman do that while at least, you know, keeping herself as healthy, you know, hopefully avoiding full-blown menorrhea and avoiding these problems. And what this female, what they saw in this female runner is during her off season, which is nine months out of the year, she would increase her body fat to anywhere from 12 to 14%. And while eating sufficient calories with like a 40 to 45 energy availability, right? Again, she's running. God knows how much a, a, a year, a, a week, but she was at, at and, and her menstrual cycle would come back during her, her base buildup. And then for like, I forget offhand, it was like six to eight weeks. Cause she was very close. She was only a couple of kilos over her race weight, mm -hmm. but it was enough. It was enough to let her eat enough to normalize the system. And then as she entered her pre-competition phase, she would very gradually lose those two or three kilos, and she would. She would become amenorrheic during her race season, which was two to three months, and then she would gain the three kilos back. So, so the thing was she wasn't attempting to stay uh, race lean year-round, but, but you do see that among the C competitors, and there is a real you – know, admittedly, the, the average model is not generally having to maintain 12%. Mm -hmm. You're not like uh, – fashion model. If you're a physique model, you know, and you make your living that way, you probably are. But as long as you're not, you know, trying, you know, contest lean is a whole nother level of lean, right? You look at a woman at 15%, she'll typically have visible abs. She'll probably have some cuts on her legs, a little bit of dehydration, a couple pound fat loss. You know, if she's got a photo shoot coming up or whatever. I, I don't know professionally how, you know, if, if these women are expected to stay like this year round. I tend to doubt it. I tend to think they go, you've got a photo shoot coming up. You've got six weeks, six weeks or whatever. Well, if you're a couple pounds of fat within your goal, you know how to diet. You do a short little diet. You make your photo shoot. You look great. You do your gig. Go up a couple pounds. Make sure you're eating enough. Um, you know, I've, I've got a friend here in, in Austin who did figure modeling for a while or fitness modeling, and that's what she would do. She would just wait. She stays lean year round, you know, lean enough, and then she had to do a contest photo shoot, and she would diet for four weeks and dehydrate a little bit, and she'd make it, and she'd come back up to, you know, a, a healthier body fat percentage. You know, 
I will say, because in the book, you know, I sort of talk about healthy slash sustainable and then optimal for gains. And those are not necessarily the same thing, right? Strength power athletes, physique athletes don't make good muscular gains trying to stay 16% year. And they all want, a lot of them want to because they don't want to get fluffy. But it just, you can't eat enough. You're, you're having to keep your calories so controlled. It, it's very difficult to do. So for like a female physique athlete, she may need to get to 20 to 22% body fat to make improvements in her muscle mass. What if she doesn't want to? If she's, like you said, a figure model or a, you know, a fitness model, that's her profession, staying at 16 to 18% with sufficient calories may be perfectly viable for her. As long as, you know, she might again have a slightly subclinical menstrual cycle disorder, but at least she will be. She won't have full-blown amenorrhea. Mm -hmm. um, endurance athletes, like I said, this runner stayed, you know, 12 to 14%. You know, that's within the error bar of, of measurements. But she was, again, she was eating enough and really is the energy availability is the key thing here. It's when a woman tries to maintain 16% by just keeping her calories down and doing too much, doing lots of cardio and her energy availability is staying low and, and sort of an oddity. And I hate to even, I, well, I mentioned this in the book and, you know, I don't want to get into metabolic damage because we need to switch to menopause, but right. So there's, there's a phenomenon you see online, right? The women who have been doing the high carb cardio grind for two years. They're just cardioing their damn brains out. They're not eating enough protein, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a whole cluster of problems that that causes for most women. Then they get into the weight room and proper weight training. I'm not, I don't mean pissing around with three pound dumbbells or any of that. You know, they, they start lifting and I'm not saying it has to be power lifting. They're challenging themselves. Usually when that happens, their cardio gets cut way back. Their diet changes. And it's magic. The, 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 it just it infuriates women because they're like, I've seen more improvements in three months than I did in three years with this other bullshit. Like it's so frustrating. And there's a number of reasons that this is occurring. But I think one of them is that by cutting out all that cardio and cutting out all that calorie restriction, there is going to be an effect. If you take a woman who is currently below or even near the critical energy availability threshold and suddenly she's eating enough her metabolic rate will increase. And I don't want this to be heard as like, oh, she had the metabolic damages. Like, I don't want that to come out of what I'm saying, but there will be an effect. And she may, because that's what you hear from these women. Mm. I'm able to maintain on much, but, and there's other things when you eat, you know, when you eat few calories, non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, you just don't move around. You're tired all the damn time. Weight training seems to have a slightly differential effect on meat for a number of reasons. You're eating more, you're eating more protein. There's a ton of stuff going on, but at least one of the things that's being removed is this low energy availability reduction in resting metabolic rate, along with all the other adaptations to essentially she's chronically dieting yeah and when she stops doing that and removes that 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 blocker the magic happens so i think there's there's also that if you again if you're 16 percent and you're trying to make gains you're having to diet constantly to do that and you're going to be causing yourself problems if you can do it and keep calories high enough you should be able to maintain you know but, but you should be menstruating if you typically have a menstrual cycle um otherwise you are very potentially losing bone density and that's bad. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with a couple of uh, key points. Number one is to you know structure the micro cycle of the diet um, with aggressive or you know more uh, fat loss focused days, and then having you know two to three days at maintenance calories, 
Um, I think other take-home points would be to have uh, maintenance calorie intakes or at least, you know, bringing calorie intake up, um, you right. know, periodically throughout the year as opposed to continuously trying to diet. And that's something I'll talk about yes. a little bit more when we talk about cognitive uh, disinhibition. Um, but I right. guess that, that, that's a, there's a case there for uh, reverse dieting, even though, you know, everyone's come out and completely bashed it and said that, hey, you know, it's not, you know, effective, I, the recovery diet's I better. Depends on how you're defining it to a great degree, because mm. um, it's there, and that's part of the problem with some of the criticisms. And I've been guilty of this myself. I'll be completely honest: is it has different meanings to different people, mm. right? The, the reality is that until you're at maintenance calories, you do not get metabolic recovery. Yeah. Period. Okay, that is this is not even debatable. The only real question is how long it takes you to get there. And this was kind of let, let me sort of back up. So we talked about you know how the dieter can avoid menstrual cycle dysfunction, or at least limit it, delay it. We talked about how, you know, what they can do to try to maintain it a lower body fat and still at least have some sort of normalization. But there's also the question of, okay, your diet's over. Now what, right? What's mm -hmm. the best way to restore normal menstrual cycle function? And, in, and, and, and like, yeah, so like in, in, a, in an ideal theoretical world, it's go right back to maintenance. But Again, as I was I saying, in terms of the physique yeah. athlete or the model who may, you know, need to maintain a certain level of conditioning, sure. if we reverse diet, we can, you know, uh, increase their Correct. energy availability slowly without that, Correct. you know, rebound. So, right. So, and that's kind of been the thing, right? The idea of reverse dieting is that you kind of slowly bring calories back up. And the idea was always to restore normal metabolic rate without getting fat. Unfortunately, the system doesn't work that way. It can't. And so the two, the, the same two case studies, right? I talked about the one where the woman dieted very higher calories, gradual, blah, blah, blah. And then the woman who started low and what they did after their diet was actually also very illustrative. The rational dieter, and I realize that's kind of a loaded term, but in my in my opinion, that she that's how women should ideally diet. Right after the contest, she brought her calories back up. She ended up going right back to her original body fat percentage, which again, for a physique athlete, she needed to get back to 22 to make gains yeah. for the next season. That may be very different. The other one who started too lean to begin with took 20 weeks to get her calories back to maintenance to avoid getting fat again. Well, guess what? She still gained, she still ended up right back where she started. She actually ended up higher than she started. Mm -hmm. But the, the other consequence is not only did she lose her menstrual cycle five months before her contest, it took her like a year and seven months to get it back. Right. The first dieter got hers back instantly. She was she she lacked a menstrual cycle for two months because she only hit very low energy availability for one month. She was right back to normal within within the second month. And there's some in and this is there's some details, a lot of details in this in the book, right? In in the simplest sense, the way to cure amenorrhea, hypothalamic amenorrhea, is to eat more and train less. Getting athletes to do it is the hard bit, but in premise, that's all that's really what it takes. You have to raise energy availability. Mm -hmm. You can either reduce activity, increase food intake, or both. Usually what happens is you tell neurotic athletes to do this. Oh, they raise their calories. They just add a training day or they train harder because they're exercise addicts and they're nuts because they're athletes. I was an athlete for 30 years. I get it. Um, but there's at least some indication that the longer you've lost your menstrual cycle, the longer it takes to come back for some reason. It's, it's highly variable, and I can't say – with certainty that that second case study, that that's why it took. But the point was that rather than having lost her menstrual cycle for two months with very bone mineral density loss happens over time, right? It might be two to 3% loss over a year, 
but that's also two to three percent loss versus the two to three percent you might be gaining. So you're actually negative four to six or whatever the numbers work out to. So the, the, the less of a time you can have that occur, the better. But this woman, like I said, she was without her menstrual cycle for like a year and seven months because she took she just simply took way too long to get her calories back up to normal. So my, my general opinion, which has not changed in a couple of decades uh, or in a decade plus, you know, I don't want it. I don't want it to take more than two weeks to get to maintenance, mm-hmm. because there is that. Usually, the when people crap on reverse dieting and these slow increases in calories, the the big argument for it, which I address and I don't disagree with, some people completely lose control of their food intake. Yeah. Right? There's there's some great studies back in the 80s, back in the old bodybuilding days when everybody dieted extremely and food intake goes from like 1200 to like 3600 in a day. Like you, there used to be horror stories and this was this was big male pros. They would gain 40 pounds in 2 days. Now it's water, right? It's all hydration, it's all glycogen and water. But just these they were so dehydrated and so depleted going in. And you know, th- there's almost the practical issue of Good luck not raising your calories. When your hunger is just off off the map, you may not be able to do it, which is then countered by there's such high dietary restraint levels mm-hmm. in, in, in the dieters that get to this level. And I'm going to say something that will – it's potentially very – uh, offensive is the wrong word, but it, it, it could come across the wrong way and I want to really qualify it, right? Eating disorders are not a joke. It's actually, and it's something I really don't touch on in the book, not my area that needs to be clinically dealt with, right? Whether it's anorexia, bulimia, eating disorder, not otherwise specified. They are not a joke. They are, women are like nine times more prone to them than men. They are no joking matter. However, even a subclinical eating disorder, I'm willing to predict that successful physique athletes all have one mm-hmm. if they don't have an eating disorder. Yeah. And this is the, and what I'm going to say next is what's going to sound so potentially offensive. I think that's part of why they're successful. Not that I'm justifying it, not that I'm saying it's a good thing, but I think without that degree of willing to embrace the hunger, which is something you hear on some of the, the pro anorexia boards, you won't make it because you simply won't survive the diet. Right. Mm-hmm. Eric Helms is a little bit differently. He says, you know, if you don't start out with eating disorder, you'll end up with one. And which is unfortunately very true. But, you know, so, yes, on the one hand, your body is just telling you eat, 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 eat. But if you had the cognitive dietary restraint to get to 10 percent, you probably still have the cognitive dietary restraint to not raise your food intake unless you kind of flip that mental switch. And I do agree completely that that's where the the rapid increases in calories can really, then you get into disinhibition, then you get into sort of that trigger that you go from one extreme to the other. And I, I do agree in that sense that that having you know a more gradual increase in calories can help maintain. And, and if you are, if you're trying to you know, if you if you're rebounding from 10 to 22 to 24, who cares? You, you got to get there anyway. Whether you do it in three months or nine months doesn't make three fifths of a difference. If you're trying to go from you hit 12 percent, or you're trying to you know you hit 14, say 14 percent for a um, photo shoot, and you only want to go back to 16 percent, you can't afford to rebound to 20. Because that's another three-month diet, and if you get a gig in a month that they say, we need you in shape, you're out of luck, right? The physique competitor is going to rebound, still take a few months. And they've got Ideally, more time in the off-season. For a year, right? They've yeah. got a year or whatever before they're going to have to diet again. Yeah. If 
if fitness is your profession and your appearance is your profession, you can't afford that to mm. occur. So I, so I, I think this gets back to the always, it's always context. Correct. It's context. And I think, uh, yeah, like you've been saying, the reverse diet in decreasing or increasing energy availability, uh, is probably better right. suited to those females who aren't getting to the, you know, the 12%, but are probably hovering right. around the 16 and, you know, want to stay somewhere around yeah. there, semi lean, you know, photo shoot ready at any stage kind of thing, because they can yes. walk calories up, bring it down Absolutely. and so on. So Absolutely. Forth. Yeah, I don't disagree at all. So, so yeah, and again, as always, you know, we, we people forget about the context of, of and, what's going. And on, on this, I, I just wanted your your opinion on this. I, I would say that you could almost uh, approach the same with weight class athletes and powerlifters <laughs> in getting them down to their body weight and then into competition. So. Something I've done with a lot of my female uh, powerlifters. Uh, when they have to make weight is bring calories down as quickly as possible, but then walk them up to as high as possible uh, well, within the time frame of their uh, competition. So they're, they're making weight, but on as many calories possible. And we're, we're reversing that, um, you know, sure. the adaptations. You know, and, and, you know, weight class athletes have the added advantage that they can use that, that rapid weight loss at the very yes, end. Correct. Like they're not they're you know, as long as they're depending on, you know, weigh in, as long as they're within three to 5%, mm -hmm. they don't necessarily have to do it with diet. Sometimes they do. Um, it depends, it gets depending on their goal weight class, depending on how much, you know, what their weight is now. If they've got a two hour weigh in, they're in a very different situation versus a 24 hour weigh in. You know, I've, I'm training a female power lifter and, and luckily her federation has a 24 hour weigh in. It makes and, she, you know, which is great. She'll, she, she trains at 120 and she competes at 114. And we basically, I don't even start anything as long as she's, we, we've, we've tracked for the last few meets and as long as she's about 120 and a half or so on a Sunday, we can get her there just through. And I do just a very tip, very traditional. I don't really water load. We just sort of, we cut the fiber out. We start cutting her carbs down. We keep her fats high. You know, I don't want her dieting. I just want her reducing carbs. Water starts to drop. We've seen it takes a couple days. She starts sending me crazy ass emails about I'm not going to make it. I'm like, just, we, we know how your pattern is. And then, you know, we'll, she might have to sauna a little bit the night before glass of wine, whatever to a little bit, you know, herbal diuretic. She'll weigh in at 9am and then she'll compete at 121. Mm. I have never known someone who could eat like this, but you know, so she'll, she, she, she competes where she, she competes where she trains, but she still comes in at 113.5. I think that's so, important too, is, you know, uh, once you have made weights, obviously if you have the benefit of a 24 hour weigh in versus two, mm. But even if you have a two-hour weigh-in and you can handle the food, is to you know try yes. and get back to the body weight. Um, you can, yeah. Uh, but but yeah, but there's certainly you know there's uh, I remember I look back you know at, at my high school and I went to high school in the '80s and I watched what our wrestlers did, and you want to talk about pathological practices, you know the the spitting in a cup, the eating nothing mm. but watermelon the day before because the actual weight of the food was more important than the calorie value, which is true. But you get these guys that are having to just, and they would, they'll scream down to make weight and then they'll rebound by 10 or 15 pounds. And, you know, if you're, 
some of that depends on your competition schedule. Powerlifters are not competing weekly. Wrestlers are. Mm. Um, and if you're rebounding five or 10 pounds every week, you are having to go through hell weekly to make it. Whereas if they would stay, you know, and, and one of the papers I saw, I think that talked about that said, you know, should try to stay within like, you know, two to 3% of your weight class. Because yeah. again, like that, like that, uh, fitness model, if they if they rebound to 20 and they got to be at 15 in a month, they're losing money. They're, they're, they, they are hurting their profession. And if you are a, a strength power athlete or weight class athlete and you are 10% above your body weight, I mean, yeah, I, there's a, a Reed Real has done a really good guy. He's done a lot not, of research. Not a Rosie. What's that? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, super. I contacted him a while back via email about because women have sort of separate issues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's like, yeah, I listened to a podcast of mine that was excellent. He's like, you can do 10% with a 24 hour weigh in. I don't know that I would ever, unless I had to, put somebody through that because that's hell. I, like, have, to, I did it yeah, for, for a world record, on. though. Sure. And in that case, you do what you got to mm. do. But. 60 I mean, kilo my, female lost six kilos not, overnight that's not, and uh, yeah. went, went out and set uh, three uh, yeah. world records in the GPC. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's kind it's of the thing. <laughs> the average person don't bother. If you've got world records on the line, if you've got gold medals on the line, you do what it takes. But, you know, so I, you know, it, it happens. And if for her getting to that lower weight class meant that, well, she had to go. My, my lifter I would, would never do that last. for a local athlete, or you know, just an amateur no, competitor. Mm. Um, even my lifter, she she was uh, ready. She was potentially setting some age group um, world records, and we knew that that fed scale was hot, was heavy, and they wouldn't they wouldn't acknowledge it. There, it was it really it it really annoyed me quite honestly. Their response was, "Oh, let's improve your Wilkes." Uh, Anyway, she so she had to lose an extra pound to be safe, and on a 120 pound female, have that extra half a kilo, oh, yeah. she it suffered. Hurts. We we you know we we boiled her, we steamed her. I she she went through hell. She made it, but she went through hell to get there. And as you you know, so yes, if you can keep within that that small range, it saves you having to do that. So that is another place absolutely where. Do as much as you can with rapid weight loss. Like, do as much as you can that you're not even manipulating food intake calorie levels. You're manipulating, you know, fiber content and carb intake and, and that sort of stuff. If you have to diet, yeah, absolutely do it as gradually as you can in both directions. Again, we've got the situation, you know, a female powerlifter or strength power or weight lift class athlete, they're not competing at 12%. And again, I think this, this is one of the big distinctions. They typically what 15, 16% unless they really have a bit higher. So they're, they're not really flirting with the menstrual cycle dysfunction. They're also not dieting for those extended periods of time. They're not doing a six month chronic low calorie diet. Minimal physique is just, yeah. Physique is just, it's a weird thing um, that has these, it's, it's not even performance based, you know, runners, cyclists, like I said, they have the advantage of, they're doing, you know, runners are doing two-hour runs once or twice a week. Cyclists are doing 30 hours in the saddle. They can be in a deficit and still eat a lot of food. And a small physique mm -hmm. athlete is maybe on 1,400 calories, which no matter how you do it, is not much food to be eating. And they so they have their own own set of considerations. Um, so, yeah, no, nah, awesome. I think that a lot of listeners will uh, 
see a lot of benefit in what we've just discussed, Lyle. And, you know, I guess the final thing I wanted to discuss on that was, um, you know, specific hormone levels and uh, females are getting labs done and checking for right. imbalances and things like this, you know, to, to just make sure that, you know, they're not in any way, shape or form, you know, in those two, you know, uh, subclinical categories yeah. of uh, monorrhea, um, you know, what, you know, I guess I'll load you with a couple of questions. If you can just fire these off uh, as quickly as can, um, you know, what type of lab should they be seeking? Um, at what stage during their cycle, if they're still getting uh, menses and how frequently for that to be useful? Yeah, so, so first let me say, you know, this is, once you get sort of into this realm, it's a little bit outside my area, but I can sort of tell you what the, the general approaches are, right? So very briefly, the women's menstrual cycle, the average is 28 days. It's split in the middle at ovulation. First two weeks, follicular phase, estrogen is the dominant hormone. Second two weeks, luteal phase, progesterone tends to be kind of the dominant hormone and estrogen is a little bit lower and they kind of, so, so estrogen will start here at the day one, sweep up, peak right before ovulation, crash back down, and then progesterone and estrogen will come up and then loop back down at the end of the cycle. So typically, and, and this is a problem, is okay, well, when you measure a woman's hormones, will give you a completely different picture, right? Mm -hmm. If you do the, the, the what's called the early follicular week one, you'll, you should see very low estrogen and progesterone. If you do three days before ovulation, you should see very high estrogen and low progesterone. First week of the luteal phase will look different than the middle will look different than, than the final. So you, you, all, you frequently may, may have to either A, um, do multiple tests within a month. This has actually been an issue in research is – determining where in a woman's cycle she is, because while these are these average durations, the only day a woman can identify conclusively is the first day of menstruation. Mm. That is day one by definition. Everything else is a guess to a degree. Like, you know, there is a, there's the increase in basal body temperature that indicates ovulation. Some women swear they can feel it, and there's often a change in their behavior. Actually, mm. it's usually they become more more hornier, basically, for lack of a because that's when they're that's when they're fertile. There's a spike of testosterone. It's all these things going on. Um, you know, if a woman is is uh, prone to premenstrual syndrome or premenstrual dysphoric disorder, that would typically indicate the fourth week of the cycle. But some women get it earlier. So, like early studies were were really bad. They just asked women to basically estimate. And that's useless. That that that's so so. Ideally, you you know you you would do like mid follicular, and there's normal hormone levels. You know, there's there's norms, clinical norms, mid luteal, and there's clinical norms. But there's all a really big range. So I, I don't even really know. You know, frequently in studies they'll use ultrasound to determine when ovulation has occurred. But we're now getting into some you know some mm -hmm. serious clinical level stuff that that I don't really you know what I would say is that if a woman just gets a spot test she just goes in a spot check on her hormones it's meaningless unless she knows has some general idea of where she is in her cycle you know her estrogen could be anywhere in this range and it won't uh, knowing that it's here within this doesn't really tell you anything yeah. so. I would expect that, you know, an OBGYN would do, would, would find some way to determine where, you know, and look at least like mid lute, you know, mid follicular, mid luteal. That's typically what the studies use because they give sort of the best average. Uh, so, you know, day seven, day 21 is typically on a 28 day cycle. This is complicated by the fact that the menstrual cycle can range anywhere from 24 to 32 days. So this is assuming a 28 day cycle. 
what you typically see, right? So we've got the normal menstrual cycle. Like I said, estrogen starts low, sweeps high before ovulation, crashes back down, and then both progesterone and estrogen go up. With that luteal phase defect, generally what's happening is that progesterone will be lower. Um, estrogen may be lower as well, but typically progesterone, and that's progesterone is responsible for maintaining the endometrial lining, which is where the, the egg develops for pregnancy if it's fertilized. And that's sort so that's kind of the first step is, is there's not enough progesterone, it's not going high enough. Progesterone is not going up sufficiently um, to maintain that. And, and that's also part of why the luteal phase, but again, the follicular phase may lengthen. So the cycle length may not change, but the relative proportions. Going into anovulation, estrogen will be low because it, that, that big spike of estrogen and follicle-stimulating hormone will be lost. That's what causes the uh, follicle to burst and release the egg. So at that point, you would typically see an overall lowering of estrogen and progesterone. And I think in the book, I talk about how, like, essentially, and this is the bone mineral, like, essentially, these are all low estrogen states to one degree or another. But it's like, I think on average, progesterone gets hit earliest, then estrogen and progesterone. And by the time you're amenorrheic, estrogen is like one third of normal all the way through the cycle. It progesterone's like 10%. Mm -hmm. Because progesterone is released from the egg. Like it, the egg is what's producing is progesterone. So when it's no longer being released, you're not getting progesterone production. The ovaries produce estrogen due to luteinizing hormone pulse, luteinizing hormones. So when when levels of that go down, estrogen is no longer being produced, um, at least in the bloodstream. So that that would be kind of the general, you know, like I said, the problem is that there's just there's really no indication. I mean, it, it can be assumed that it's occurring at some point. Mm -hmm. And actually, another researcher named D'Souza, when they first realized that these clinical, these subclinical disorders existed, they took college women and even exercising only two hours a week caused a fairly large, like 30% or something, to develop luteal phase defect. Like women's systems are just super, 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 super sensitive to this stuff in a way that men's just aren't, right? And it's hard to tell. I doubt, you know, I doubt food intake was controlled. A lot of college women are perpetually dieting. Like there's a lot going on, but, and then as exercise volume went up, like the percentage and the severity kind of increased. Um, so yeah, so it would kind of be those, you know, looking at, at yeah. those pictures, you know, and the thing is even there, you need a baseline. Right. You need to know because women do show variance even during the normal menstrual cycle where their relative levels of estrogen or progesterone so are, is a waste are high. Of time? I, you know, part of me thinks yes, because it's kind of one of those things that it's going to happen and there's really nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Like it's, you know, and, and, I, and I'm kind of of the opinion, you know, I see like guys online. Oh, you know, should I get my hormones? I, I don't gain muscle easily. Should I get my hormones tested? And my question is always, well, what are you going to do with that information? If your test comes back and it says you have low testosterone, now what? If you're not going to go on hormone replacement, if you're not going to take drugs, what is this information giving you that you don't already know? So it's it, so I'm, I'm kind of a you know it, certainly if a woman again context if a woman's trying to to get pregnant yeah. and is and can't this is a, now we're dealing with a medical issue now we're dealing with a very different goal she needs to go find out what is the cause of her infertility. Now, you know, an easy one, she could very much look at her calorie intake and her activity, but, and there is, there's this subpopulation of women that seem to be able to mentally stress themselves into, into amenorrhea. They're usually, um, perfectionists who are very sensitive to external validation, which is, I'd say every physique athlete 
ever. Um, Definitely. Again, I'm not. I'm not trying to just be like a shit to be a shit. It just. It is what it is. Like you. You can't. You can't be a front man on a band if you're not a narcissist. You can't. Yeah. It's part of the personality profile. Every job tends to have an optimal personality. If you're not a narcissist, you're not going to get up on stage in front of a million people. Period. If you don't, if you don't really care, if you're not very body oriented, if you don't really care what other people think, you don't want to get on stage in your posing trunks, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it like you're, it just, it is what it is. It comes with the territory. We just have to acknowledge it and work with it. it they also, the women that have this, they describe them as, as dealing poorly with daily hassles. Mm -hmm. And I find it utterly amusing that in uh, that clinical research refers to it as hassles. I just think that's such, so great. Um, so you typically, you know, sort of an overreactive stress system. There yeah. is that group who's just a little tightly wound, you know, so, but women could look, you know, that's look at the simple, well, you know, look at the simple stuff. If you like, if you've got that high stress profile, maybe all you really need is meditation or mindfulness yeah. or something to get you to just chill the hell out. Um, you know, wine culture, um, <laughs> or whatever, you know, if you know that you're prone to under eating and over exercising, well, you know, and, and that's, that's been kind of the current thing now that we know that energy availability <clears throat> is really the key is that, you know, they've got questionnaires and all this other stuff, but it's like, okay, just look, look at how much you're actually eating. Look at how much your activity is. You can rough calculate energy availability. If you're a woman trying to get pregnant and your energy available, well, that may, it may be as simple as that, but it may not be. Women's reproductive systems can, you know, PCOS is one of the most, it's something like 20 to 25% of all infertile women are diagnosed with PCOS. Mm -hmm. That is one of the absolutely most common. And part of the problem there is there's multiple kinds of PCOS. One does tend to be associated with ele elevated testosterone. And, and again, there will be clear signs. Those women tend to carry a more male-like fat pattern. They tend to be more muscular. They may have uh, oily skin, uh, slight hair loss, acne, extra body hair. Like that's typical, but not all of them do. Um, the hyperandrogenism is not always part of that. So women might, that you can also be lean, PCOS is also associated with obesity, which is its own cause of infertility. But there is a lean type of PCOS woman that may have, but, but again, that can be measured with, they can ultrasound to see if there are cysts on the ovaries. Insulin resistance is a hallmark of it. Typically they are amenorrheic or have oligomenorrhea. The, these are kind of the, the, these are the diagnostic criteria for this. But so if a woman is trying to get pregnant and can't, despite, you know, doing everything right, um, in terms of tracking body temperature, whatever, then I think that's a case where it's worth getting a medical workup to see, you know, again, if she can't identify very simple problems. Um, but again, if I had a woman who just emailed me and said, you know what, I don't even train and I don't really watch my food intake and I'm not overweight and I can't get, I'd say go to a doctor because this is something medical and with women, it can be a million different things.